This is Mike Palmer. Happy 4th of July, Independence Day here in the United States. As I started thinking about this holiday on Monday, which is when we normally release episodes, I was trying to decide what could I do that would capture the spirit of the times at this particular moment. What I decided was that there's no better way to capture what I'm thinking than to re-air my conversation from last September with Dr. Fatali Mugadam, who's a psychology professor out of Georgetown University. He's worked in conflict resolution. He has a really interesting history, which he will share in this episode. And he talks a lot about the psychological qualities that are necessary to resist tyranny and authoritarianism. For a lot of reasons, I think this is an appropriate episode to share these days, and this is one of those conversations that has stuck with me over the years. So in the event that you missed this when it first aired, here's another run at Fatali Mogadam talking about Shakespeare and tyranny and psychology and what it takes to be a good citizen. If you heard it already, maybe you'll benefit from hearing it again. We'll be back with fresh episodes starting this Thursday and starting this Friday, our new Future of Work feed, Trending in Ed, the Future of Work, will also be launching. Lots going on this summer. Thanks as always for listening. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at trendinginteducation.com for more great stuff and to stay on top of all of these details. With that, let's pick up with this special re-airing of my conversation with Fatali Mogadam. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited today to be joined by Dr. Fatali Mogadam, who is a professor in the Department of Psychology and a faculty fellow at the Berkeley Center at Georgetown University. He's going to tell you about his expertises. They're plural. Also, his publications are plural. I feel very honored to have Dr. Mogadam in my presence. Ali, welcome to Trending in Education. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you. I'm delighted and honored to be here. That's fantastic. And to begin the conversation, we like to get to know our guests in their own words. I like to talk about folks sharing their origin story. Can you share with us what got you to this point in your professional life? In brief, I was born in uh, Iran, in Tehran, Iran, and I stayed there for eight years before my family moved to England. For various reasons, I was put in a boarding school in London where I was raised and received my formal education in England. Mm -hmm. In 79, when the revolution was uh, taking place, 78, 79, this was something very important to me because as a student of social psychology, I was doing experiments on groups and here was a real experiment. And I rushed back, I drove back to Iran from England mm. and I remained in Iran for about five years through the very difficult times of hostage taking and yeah. um, the beginnings of the Iran-Iraq war and beginning of 84, I left because I realized there was very little else I could do to try to promote democracy mm. 
We'd reached a dead end. I had reached a dead end. Yeah. And I left and I went to Canada. I worked at McGill University until 1990 when I went from McGill to Georgetown University. And that's where I've been since. Yeah. And it's the sort of typical story of uh, an immigrant in the United States uh, thrown by circumstances here and there. Yeah, yeah. I skipped over some of the areas which you studied, and there's plenty of them. They're really interesting and relevant, dare I say, zeitgeisty, which is something I try to say periodically on the show. They are very uh, emergent, even though you've been covering them throughout your career. Some of these expertise include culture and intergroup conflict with a particular focus on the psychology of globalism, radicalization, human rights and duties, and terrorism. And then there's another dimension that talks about authoritarianism. There was a Netflix piece that I saw that you were behind, How to Become a Tyrant, I believe it was called. Yes. Looking at this all through a psychological lens, there's really a depth to your body of work where we could go in a lot of interesting directions. Uh, And then one of them that I want to make sure we at least spend a little bit of time on is what we can learn from Shakespeare, which is uh, something that you're working on in the coming year. Can you catch us up in terms of your intellectual history? And and good job by you that there's so much to talk about. Did you provide us some kind of narrative or some way to understand what you've been studying throughout your life? Yes, of course. I'm really an educator who started with experimental social psychology and doing laboratory work Mm -hmm. and went back to Iran and was forced by circumstances to look at the real world in more detail and to change my perspective in many ways. And all of the themes that I work on really arise out of my experiences in Iran, where my education and training clashed with the requirements of the real world. Mm -hmm. And out of that arose these different strands, which really come back to one big issue. How can we achieve citizens who are supportive of democracy and who can sustain democracy? Right. And as a psychologist trained to do brief experiments, I've had to change my orientation and look at very long-term periods Mm -hmm. because the question of how can we move towards what I call actualized democracy really has to be looked at in the long term. Mm -hmm. So I've been looking at what I call political plasticity, Mm -hmm. how fast and how much people can change politically. Yeah. Looking at this at least since Athens 2,500 years ago. Okay. And thinking about the challenges we have here today in the 21st century. Right. We've been going backwards in a number of ways, becoming less democratic and less open. Right. So that's the sort of educational thrust that I have. And then we are living in interesting times. In some ways, the setup leading into the challenging period globally that we've been in for the last 18 months or so is a new dimension. I'd be curious about your perspective on these cataclysmic moments in time, although this is more of a period. But how does that factor into an understanding of what's emerging, the opportunities and some of the risks around this era that we're living in? 
I think I could take that in two parts. One is as an educator, mm -hmm. how can I respond to this situation, which is, I see it as a crisis situation yep. for democracy. Mm -hmm. And one of my responses has been to break out of narrow specialization. As educators, we're pushed into narrower and narrower strands. Mm -hmm. And I think one of my responses to the crisis that we're going through right now has been to really look outside and break out of my narrow specialization. Mm -hmm. So my latest book, Shakespeare and the Experimental Psychologist, mm. that came out of my teaching and the realization that as an experimental psychologist, I can learn a lot from Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I, in that book, I argue that Shakespeare is the root of experimental psychology. Interesting. And I provide examples of thought experiments in Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. And the final chapter comes back to the issue of dictatorship. And I begin the final chapter with quotations from Donald Trump and Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that's been one of my responses. Yeah. A, a second response to the crisis we're going through is really to, as a psychologist, to home in on the question of the cognitive underpinnings of democracy and dictatorship. Mm. What are the thought processes that underlie mm -hmm. democracy and dictatorship? What are the conditions in which these different political systems arise and are sustained? Mm -hmm. And of course, the big challenge is to avoid dictatorship. And it is a huge challenge in the 21st century because in this century, we have globalization, the rise of threats of various kinds. Yeah. And we know from psychological research that when people are threatened, mm. they ha are less supportive of human rights and civil liberties. Mm. Mm. are more supportive of authoritarian leaders. Yeah. So this creates a, a particular challenge. And so I have worked on the psychology of democracy and dictatorship and published books on those yeah. topics. And I've developed what I call a springboard model of dictatorship. Right. Which argues that dictatorship continues or it arises when the springboard is ready. So it's the context that is important. Right. It is the context that we have to give priority to. As a psychologist, I would argue that there are, in terms of personality factors, always in all groups, individuals who are potential dictators. Mm -hmm. There's always a potential dictator in every group. Mm -hmm. But why is it that all societies, all groups don't turn into dictatorships? I argue it's because the springboard to dictatorship is not available all right. the time. When it becomes available, the potential dictator can use it to spring to power. Right. But of course, the potential dictator is not ineffective and inactive in bringing about the springboard. Right. The potential dictator can help to 
bring about the springboard, as I experienced in Iran in 79, when Khomeini, mm -hmm. once we had got rid of the Shah, Khomeini recreated the springboard, helped bring it about and launched himself into another dictator. Yeah. And we're seeing an increased occurrence of the conditions of the springboard. Authoritarian regimes are on the rise and even within more democratic places like the United States, there's a tendency towards authoritarianism as well. In our case, Trumpism globally, there may be other ways to understand it. And that is also something where credit to you. And I'd love to get more of your perspective on where we may be biased or overly narrow in our understanding of psychology and some of our assumptions around individualism. Do you have any perspective you can share about really any of this? Thank you. Yes. I do believe that in mainstream psychology, we have taken the wrong perspective because we have neglected the context. For me, psychological processes have to be looked at from the outside in. Mm -hmm. Now, this may seem paradoxical because you say the, the brain is in the individual, mm -hmm. so we have to start there. But no, before the individual arrives in this world, there is already cognition out there. Mm -hmm. There is already a culture. There is already a normative system. There is already a prescription for how to behave. Mm -hmm. We fit into that larger culture. So we have to start by looking at what's going on outside and then working to the individual. Of course, I'm not the first person to have this idea. Right. Vygotsky, mm -hmm. Jerome Bruner, Ram Hare, many people have had this idea. I'm just following this slide and yeah. arguing that in order to, to understand what is going on with democracy and dictatorship right now, we should not start with individuals. Mm -hmm. We have to start by looking at collective processes mm -hmm. and the narratives and values, et cetera, that are shared collectively. Mm -hmm. As regards the trends at the moment, it's very clear that we are in a trend of declining openness, declining democracy, weakening democracy, hmm. and the rise of authoritarian strongmen. And this is, as you pointed out, not just in non-Western societies, it mm -hmm. is also in the West. Right. And I believe psychologically, this has a lot to do with the increased perceptions of threats, different types of threats. Yeah. Whether it's threats of Mexicans coming across the border, right. uh, Muslims invading us, mm -hmm. uh, all these threats. It's not just the West that sees these threats. In Islamic countries, they see the threat of invasion from anti-Islamic forces. Right. So you've got the rise of uh, these extremist groups in Iran, in uh, Afghanistan, mm -hmm. in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Islamic world, including the largest country, Indonesia, where I've visited and given talks, in these countries, there is a perception of invasion from the West. Mm -hmm. 
So what we have is the mobilization of authoritarian, often nationalist, often religious groups mm -hmm. against what they see to be threats from the outside. Yeah. And then thinking about this from the educational perspective, what advice would you give to educators, folks who are trying to design curricula, think about where the world of learning is going? It does sound like we are in a crisis in your perspective. When I hear crisis, I think there is time to take assertive action in yes. support of positive outcomes. Can you paint for us what some of those might be for folks who care about learning and educational outcomes? Absolutely. Education is the solution in the long term. Mm -hmm. And this education, first of all, must avoid ethnocentrism. It must be education that looks outwards and trains young people to look outwards and see global trends, mm -hmm. recognize that what they are experiencing in the United States is part of a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. So the integrated nature of our globe, the integrated nature of the international system, that's the first thing we have to teach young people. Yeah. We, we cannot just build walls and say we're going to do things here apart from everybody else. So that, that's number one. Sure. A second very important mission for educators is to train people to go beyond categorical thinking. Mm. This I see to be the essence of good education, to train people to deal with ambiguities and the fact that the world is not yes, no, right, wrong. There are all these middle grounds that we have to work with and we have to recognize them. My group is not all correct and your group is all wrong. Right. There has to be a perception that it's not categorical thinking that's going to lead us to solutions. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is very difficult to do in education. Very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. And it's a challenge for modern educators because uh, the internet, the media, they're pushing us towards categorical thinking. Mm -hmm. And uh, tolerance for ambiguity is something we have to build up. Yeah, that's fascinating. It, I was going right where you're going around the, the impact of media there are new opportunities to be exposed to others as well, particularly in this context. You and I are not in the same physical space, but we're having a very engaged conversation. And that extends into small classrooms online that are being delivered well, seminar style conversations. Yes. There is something new emerging on that front. Any thoughts on the digital dimension and ways in which it is driving towards new connections across global lines. And then I think at the same time, there will still be that tendency, particularly within social media, to almost metastasize your echo chamber and filter bubble so that you're only being fed the reinforcing information that drives towards tyranny. I understand that. <laughs> Any bright notes yeah. on the psychological side? The bright note is that young people are using the media in new ways. For example, 
there are now systems in place where if you want to learn a language, you can uh, make an arrangement with somebody. Let's say I want to uh, learn Portuguese. I can make arrangements with people all over the world. I will speak with them in Portuguese for an hour. Right. And there's a payment system for all this as well. Sure. And I've seen young people use all this. And uh, really great programs where they achieve better understanding of each other, etc. <laughs> so there is that positive side. Yeah. We have to always remember that one of the principles of social psychology is similarity attraction. Right. So there is this tendency to want to interact with similar others rather than dissimilar others. Mm -hmm. And one of our challenges as educators is to teach young people that it's not just similar others you need to communicate with. Right. You need to also reach out to those who are dissimilar to you mm -hmm. and to understand them. In my book, The Psychology of Democracy, I've laid out the 10 key characteristics of what I be believe to be the psychological citizen who can support and sustain democracy. Mm -hmm. And one of the key 10 psychological characteristics of that citizen is the ability to learn from dissimilar others. Mm -hmm. So I think that is one of the challenges we have it with the new technologies as well. Yeah. And there's both the technologies and then the behavioral mechanics of the technologies. I was just looking into some of the work the Wall Street Journal did about Facebook and was really intrigued by the behavioral design that goes in that rewards conflict and re rewards provocative posts more so yes. than balanced, measured, well-informed uh, posts. How do you see us getting out ahead of some of these things. So you are looking at a broader perspective, a global one, and one that spans a longer period of time. There's a lot of concern now around the pandemic and, and global warming. Our educational system and, and the way we think about the future needs to transform itself relatively quickly. Do you have any recommendations in terms of where folks may benefit from looking and ways in which lifelong learners can continue to get better and perhaps activate against some of what you're talking about? Yes, there is a whole area of research popularized by books like Nudge, mm -hmm. where we know uh, we can make interventions, research-based interventions to change behavior. Yes. And educators are well aware of this now. And what we need to do is engage in that area mm -hmm. of interventions mm -hmm. because there are really a number of different motives working in that area. Yeah. One is certainly a, the good positive motives of trying to get people to eat better, yep. to behave in ways where they don't overconsume certain things. Yeah. They don't smoke, they don't drink too much, et cetera. They drive carefully so we can intervene to make small changes and make possible behavioral improvements. Yeah. Frequently, the term I like there is choice architecture. You're defining yes. the choices from a psychological perspective. It's almost like a cognitive restructuring, a reframing of the way we think individuals or groups 
can act. Yeah. Big believer in nudge and behavioral economics, I think more broadly. Yes. But that's a great note. Absolutely. I think educators should become more involved in this area. Yeah. And again, we come back to this issue of the collective being first and the individual is second, shaped yeah. by that collective. But we have to always remember that the same procedures, the same tools are being used with a profit motive. Mm -hmm. So the nudge movement is not just to make people into better citizens. It's right. also to create huge profits for yes. certain groups. To buy and the most expensive product, yes. Yeah. Exactly, and bring about bigger profits for certain corporations. Right. We have to be mm -hmm. careful about that side. Yeah. So educators have to be ready to criticize when the knowledge and technology is being misused. Yeah. And then is there a new model of education that you think will need to be established? We do span K-12, lifelong learning, higher ed, all of them. How much of it is working and how much of it needs to be reimagined? It's something we talk about a lot, particularly as new skills emerge. You're talking about an even more fundamental understanding of human psychology that, if I'm hearing you right, is in some ways foundational once you accept some of the premises in the way you're thinking, it, it does have some serious implications to how you would design an educational system. Oh, absolutely. Um, if we accept that we need to develop psychological citizens capable mm -hmm. of supporting and sustaining democracy, if sure. we take that as our goal, mm -hmm. then we need to redesign the education system in major ways. There's yeah. no doubt about that. Yeah. But we have to start with the understanding that democracy is not automatic, it is not natural, mm. and it is not inevitable. Yeah. This is a very important understanding yeah. we have to come to. Unfortunately, there are those in the education system who still believe in the inevitability of the end of history thesis, if you like, mm -hmm. that, that capitalist democracy is inevitable. Everybody will become that. Right, right. I've heard this from educators mm -hmm. that, that we're all going in that direction. I believe that is total nonsense. There is nothing inevitable in history. Mm. Not in the Marxist way, not in the capitalist way. Yeah. By the end of the 21st century, we could have all become a model of China in different ways. Yeah. See, the Chinese are putting forward a different model of society. Right. And they are saying our civilization provides a better system than the capitalist democratic system. Mm -hmm. And this is a competition. Mm -hmm. And there is no inevitability about who wins out. Yeah. So in education, we have to be very aware of this and we must accept the uh, responsibility of developing citizens who can help democracy win out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm continuing to come back to Shakespeare. Are there any lessons to be learned in terms of the future of education or how to be a good teacher? Everything connects to Shakespeare in some way. Yes. Just written yes. extensive book, but... Any, any ways uh, in which you could connect any of this to some of what Shakespeare put out there for us? Oh, absolutely. I come back to this challenge we have as educators 
of breaking out of our narrow specializations and looking more broadly. Mm -hmm. When I did that with Shakespeare, I discovered that, first of all, in a number of Shakespeare plays, such as Hamlet, there are these brilliant thought experiments. And if you look at the details of these thought experiments, they are really precisely laid out Mm. And they're the kind of thought experiments that could be carried out in a psychology laboratory today. Mm. So in my book, Shakespeare and the Experimental Psychologist, I, I map this out. Yeah. Then I discuss examples of scientists and science where thought experiments are the key. Mm. And one example is Albert Einstein who I consider to be the greatest scientist in the last couple of hundred years. Yeah. Einstein did not carry out actual experiments. Mm. He did thought experiments. Mm -hmm. He was so brilliant in his thought experiments, and we are still discovering the truth of some of his most important thought experiments. For example, black holes. Right. Over a hundred years ago, here he was, talking about this phenomenon. And I believe um, I'm right in saying that when he died, he wasn't sure there are black holes. Right, right. But here we are now talking about black holes as though they're concrete things. Yeah. So one of the things to keep in mind as educators, I believe, is we've got to be flexible in how we look at disciplines and specializations. And Mm -hmm. we've got to teach young people in a way that is not rigid. Mm -hmm. Sometimes as educators, we become protective of our turf. This is psychology and that is literature. Right. Uh, Don't mix up literature with psychology and and don't mix up uh, physics with, with philosophy. Just keep them apart. Right, right. That is, of course, not a very useful way to do things. We have to train young people to think flexibly. Yes. And I believe the greatest breakthroughs come when particularly young people start thinking across disciplines Yes, rather than within disciplines. So as educators, mm-hmm. we've got to encourage them to do more of that. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. And it does remind me of conversations I've had about the future of work and product development, which similarly requires that interdisciplinary, cross-functional thinking. It's, it's true in large organizations too, rather than have these silos that are operating parallel to one another. The organizational structures that win are those that are able to orchestrate across these specializations. Where do you look for inspiration these days? You have to have motivation to, in order to be able to convey that to others. What charges you up? What gives you the energy that allows you to continue to push others in a good direction? In in getting charged up, I look uh, not necessarily within our own time. Look at Shakespeare. Yeah. This is an incredible inspiration. I look at authors in different languages. I, I also am fluent in Farsi, of course. Yeah. My heritage tongue. And there is incredible inspiration to be gained by reading someone like Shakespeare and recognizing that here is somebody who is timeless, 
mm-hmm. who is not limited to any one culture and who can teach us about the world that we live in right now. So that is inspiration. Mm-hmm. And as educators, we should not be confined to a narrow discipline. And of course, we have to fight against the bureaucracy of our institution. Yes. The bureaucracy of our institution, which pushes us within a certain discipline and Mm -hmm. pushes us to think within narrow lines. Yeah. And this is bureaucracy. Yeah. I've also recently written a, a paper on the psychology of bureaucracy, which is on my website. Oh, wow. When I'm ready, that's one that I'm going to yes. lean, lean into. You're touching on another dimension of the educational universe, which is higher ed. Any thoughts on where it is today? The emergency response to go online a year ago, mixed bag. Now with the Delta variant still out there, folks are very on edge within higher education. You are within higher education. Any perspective on where higher ed is and based on your work, where we may want to steer it? There's there's sort of two answers to that. One is the short term. And uh, I think both K through 12 and higher education have really been struggling to meet this COVID challenge financially as well as anything else. So the short term challenge is definitely there. We're trying to meet it as best we can. Yeah. There is the long-term challenge and the long-term challenge for me is how can we better educate citizens who will be supportive of democracy and sustained democracy. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is far greater in challenge. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that prevents us doing a better job is the bureaucracy of higher education. If you look at the statistics and look at the number of students, the number of faculty, Mm. and number of administrators hired, you will see that the number of administrators hired is dramatically higher than the number of faculty. The the percentage increase has been so dramatic. And when you hire an administrator, Typically, what you're doing is you're adding to the bureaucracy Mm -hmm. because that's what they are trained to do. They are trained to add more rules and Mm. and then hire more people in the same vein. So one of my goals would be to cut down the number of administrators in higher education by a huge margin. Mm -hmm. And I believe this can be done, but... This is not a phenomenon just for the West. Sure. This is taking place all over the world. Mm -hmm. There are two trends that are global in higher education at the moment. One is extremely positive. That one is women given the opportunity to compete openly with men. Mm -hmm. They are doing extremely well. And their numbers are increasing. Mm -hmm. That's a very positive trend. But a very negative trend is the increasing bureaucracy of higher education, the increasing number of administrators, the increasing cost of administration. And this is universal as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe it's going to lead to a crisis 
because the costs cannot go on like this. Yeah. And it's challenging when then the administrators are also those who are responsible for the budget. So they're more likely to protect roles that are like their own. I guess maybe there's a little intergroup empathy that would benefit in, in that context as well. Really fascinating stuff, Ali. We are getting close to, to concluding here. So I think we've touched on a lot of really heavy stuff. And, and again, a credit to you for all of your work. If folks want to find your stuff, where do you recommend that they go? My website, fatalimogadam.com. Okay. Has a lot of material mm -hmm. and that's a good place to start. We'll include that in the show notes for those of you who are interested. Can you bring this all together? It's a lot that we talked about, but if there's some concluding thoughts as we're wrapping up here again, thank you so much uh, for joining. A tremendous uh, opportunity here for us to talk to you. But do you have any uh, concluding thoughts before we wrap up? Yes. My concluding thought is that in education, and we're all educators here, in education, it is really much better to work in an open democratic system. I've worked in a dictatorship. It's not fun. Yeah. So we as educators, it is in our interest to really work hard to sustain democracy. And democracy is not going to be sustained automatically. It is not inevitable. <laughs> it is something we have to fight for. We have to fight for it by helping young people to develop as psychological citizens capable of sustaining democracy. And that requires real hard work. Fantastic stuff. Dr. Fatali Mogadam out of Georgetown University, Berkeley Center. You can find all of his work on fatalimogadam.com, which we'll be sharing out as part of the show. Thank you so much for spending Thank time. Thank you very much. I greatly enjoyed it. And I'm honored. Thank you. Awesome. And hopefully our listeners enjoyed this as much as I did. If you did, uh, make sure you subscribe, write us a review, tell your friends. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. <laughs> <laughs>